We have already seen global economic and supply chain disruption. There are very real potential challenges. By being clear, we get a behavioral response that cushions the economy before the coronavirus effect arrives. And it's important that Canada be prepared for the effects beyond those of health. We are currently engaged in a gray zone conflict with Russia, that they are largely winning. The war is on. We must work to ensure all Canadians feel that they're getting a fair deal. We've endorsed uh, Aaron as uh, the best candidate, in my view. Welcome to the West Block for Sunday, March 8th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson. As the coronavirus outbreak spreads globally, stock markets here in North America are taking a hit. The financial uncertainty led the Bank of Canada and its U.S. counterpart to cut interest rates last week. But with questions about supply chain interruptions, trade slowing down and productivity dropping if people can't come to work, what does the virus mean for the Canadian economy and the pending budget? Joining me now from Toronto is Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Minister, on Friday you announced that there was going to be action by the federal government to help those businesses and people affected by coronavirus to try to help the economy. What can you tell us about those measures? Well, well, thank you, Mercedes, and it's good to be talking with you this morning. I think what I talked about Friday, and first and most importantly, is we're focused on how we how we ensure that we are prepared for a challenge around uh, coronavirus. And that starts with thinking about people. So it starts with thinking about the health of people, worried that we are taking the appropriate precautions, that we are finding a way to contain this issue as best we can. But of course, as you point out, we also need to think a little bit ahead and be concerned around people's situation with their employment, be concerned with businesses that may be facing challenges as a result of, of uh, what may or may not happen. So we are, we are taking active precautions to think about the measures that we can use to help people if they find themselves uh, without the continuation of their ability to go to work, or to help businesses in the situation where they're, they're impacted by supply issues because they can't get the materials they need for their business, or they're impacted by demand issues because people aren't uh, buying the things that, that they're selling. So, so we're thinking about those measures right now. Uh, really what we're looking for on that front is to make sure that we, we're addressing the places where we know there's gonna be issues. And so, so we know that there are some challenges in the tourism and the transportation sector, that's clear. We know that the lower price of, of oil and metals presents some challenges for, for that sector. So, so we're thinking about those, uh, those sectors and, and frankly, coming up with measures that would be appropriate uh, in the face of, of challenges and uh, being prepared in case those challenges get bigger. Do you have a scope in terms of a number of what you expect the economic impact of coronavirus to be and how much the federal government is planning to spend to try to mitigate some of these financial impacts? No, uh, Mercedes, I really can't give you a, a scope. The challenge really very much depends on the depth and the duration of this challenge uh, around the coronavirus. It also depends on the geographic spread. And so we will, we will only know that as the facts become available. I think what people need to know is that, you know, we have a strong fiscal position. So we're prepared in terms of the actual health risks, but we have a strong pos position fiscally so that we can actually take 
measures as needed as the facts come out. And, and that's what I want Canadians to be confident in, that, that the Canadian situation, our better fiscal situation than, than any other G7 country, that puts us in a strong position. And of course, our health system is also strong. So those two things together mean that we, you know, we recognize this is a challenge, but we're confident we have the tools to deal with the challenge to protect people, to protect businesses, and protect the long-term health of our economy. Minister, a lot of that strength of the Canadian economy comes from being a trading nation, though. If you start to look at the interruption of supply chains, the chances that ports or borders start to shut down, already 100 Canadians not allowed to enter the United States across the border because of concerns there. How do you mitigate for something like that that the Canadian government doesn't really have control over? Well, let me just start by acknowledging your question. I mean, there, there are very real potential challenges. But I would emphasize that their potential, that those things have not happened yet. So, so we're preparing ourselves for dealing with the supports for businesses if they do find themselves in a challenging position because of ports. And that, that would mean the import-export business could be, could be impacted. So, so that's a, it's, a, it's a very important question. And the, the answer is we, we, do have, we do have the kinds of methods of, of supporting businesses that have been used in the past. We need to make sure that they are, are there are comprehensive enough to deal with the challenge that could be smaller, could be larger. And similarly, with the supports for people, we've used them in the past. They need to be scaled to the, to the extent of a problem, and it's developing. So, so I don't want to be alarmist, because right now we are in a position where the, the economic challenge is real for some sectors, but it's not broad-based. We had you know, a strong jobs report on Friday that suggests that our economy still is, is powering along in terms of making sure people have jobs. So we are preparing ourselves, we are ready to act, and importantly, on the things that we need to act on immediately, we are acting. We're very actively working on precautions and containment, and that's the starting how, point. How quickly do you made. think that those, those measures might be announced, and more importantly, that that money might actually start to flow? Well, I, I think you, you know, you've heard that uh, Patty Haiju, Minister Haiju, has already announced some funding for you know, financing things that we need to do in terms of responding to the coronavirus. So we're, we are going to see us, as we get our plans more prepared, making announcements. That's what we want Canadians to see, is that we are actively engaged in precautions, that we are, are taking the appropriate amount of time, but, but also acting quickly because we know that people want to have assurances. And having things ready if the situation does become more difficult. But we're not there now. We do have a strong position, we are preparing ourselves, and that's what I want people to take away. You did have the strong jobs report on Friday, as you mentioned, but it predated some of the coronavirus fears that have been driving the market. You're looking at a double whammy with the blockades that we've seen across the country affecting the economy and a shrinking growth report in the last two quarters, this, this one and, and also the one that's projected going forward. A lot of the big bank economists are saying, look, there's a potential for a global recession. There's a potential for a Canadian recession. How concerned are you that coronavirus and the blockades combined could push Canada into recession? Well, Mercedes, my, my job is to be looking at all these things and to make sure we're prepared. I, we cannot deal with, with global risks like the coronavirus uh, in any way other than acknowledging them, 
uh, figuring out how we deal with them and getting on with it very rapidly. That's what we're doing. We, we're concerned most about, of course, the, the, the people issues, the real issues for individuals and families who are, who are anxious and who in some situations are actually facing immediate health risks. So that's the first step. But the economic issues, yes, they're real. We, we do need to be prepared and we are preparing. And you're going to hear us acting because that's what we should be doing when those challenges present themselves. So, so I, I, I'm not going to tell you that we're going to have a whole host of measures that are going to be announced in advance of having a problem, but we're going to be prepared to announce them when and if that comes. Good news, again, is that we have the capacity to do that. Our continued work over the last four years has been to drive down our debt as a function of the economy. And it means that compared to the G7, and that's the United States, you know, Germany, UK, France, you know, Italy, Japan, we're in a better situation than any one of those countries to respond to this. And of course, some of those countries are in a much more difficult position so far with the coronavirus. We're preparing, we're ready to move uh, when and if required. Okay. Uh, not a lot of fiscal room potentially to maneuver, but I'm sure that we will be hearing more from you on that, on the budget and on your planned measures. Minister, thank you for joining us. Now for a fact check on the Canadian economy, let's go to Brian DePrato. He's the senior economist for TD Bank in Toronto. Brian, you had a chance to listen to Minister Morneau. Do you agree with his assessment that the economy is strong and in a good place? Um, I think he's taking a relatively narrow view of the economy. You know, he focused on the labor market where we have seen some pretty good numbers, uh, but those are backwards looking. And if you take a, a broader picture, we had a very soft end to last year. Business investment sort of struggling to gain traction for a number of years now. Uh, looking at recent developments, you know, rail blockades, uh, weather, other factors. Already starting, a, you know, a, a soft start to the year before we even talk about coronavirus. So I think, you know, we don't really have a lot of growth buffer to work with here in Canada. With that limited buffer, because the government already has spent into deficit, they're planning to do that again. Is there sort of a danger that they don't have enough cushion here to absorb shock events like the blockade or like coronavirus? Uh, you know, we do have a, a little bit of room here. Uh, you know, you compare us to countries like the United States, for instance, uh, some European economies. Uh, we're in a much better fiscal position here. I think the conversation really needs to be about you know, if you're going to spend more money, are you spending it intelligently? Are you spending it in the areas that matter? And are you also spending it in areas, you know, looking beyond the very near-term shocks that are going to have longer-term benefits for the economy and increased productivity? I think those are the, the real benchmarks of government spending. Do you think that they have to make a decision about cutting certain things they plan to out of the budget, or do you expect that the government will proceed on status quo? I think it's a little bit of a bouncing act. Certainly, uh, you know, trying to read into the minister's comments this morning, uh, he does seem reticent to uh, to really spend a whole lot more. Um, you know, looking at the growth outlook here, they're probably going to have a little less revenue to work with on the planning side there. So I definitely think they're going to be, you know, doing a, a pros and cons kind of analysis, and, and we may see some reshuffling of the cards. We couldn't get an exact number from the minister on, on what they're expecting in terms of a potential economic shock for coronavirus. Of course, this is one of the areas you work in is predicting what could happen. What do you foresee? Uh, this is a moving target, uh, to be clear. Uh, but, you know, looking at what we've seen to date, some of the announcements, you know, travel tourism, things like that, uh, we would expect to see growth in the first half of the year, you know, below 1%, so well below trend. Um, you know, not talking about recession quite yet, but really a uh, a bit of a grind, I think. You know, we're marking down our, our forecast this year, probably you know three or four tenths. Again, doesn't sound that big, but we don't have that much to work with, so it's it's a pretty sizable impact. Okay, 
Brian DePrato, thank you so much for joining us. Up next, Canada at war, a warning on the greatest threat to our security. Welcome back. 2020 has been a remarkable year for global events, unfolding at breakneck speed from the targeted killing of Iran's General Soleimani and the tragic shootdown of a plane filled with Canadians to fears of a global pandemic. Joining me now is Fred Kagan of the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you for joining us, Fred. It's great to be with you. You know, we've been talking about a lot of global issues, Russia, Iran, China, all in the headlines, people looking at COVID-19 right now. You're an expert in critical threats. What do you believe the single biggest global threat is right now that keeps you awake at night? The single biggest global threat is the, is the erosion and possible collapse of the rules-based international order uh, that is being fueled by a lot of different malign actors. Um, but that poses an incredible danger to countries like the United States and Canada uh, that benefit from that order more than any others. You were just here in, in Ottawa late last week. We shared a stage together and we were talking about Russia. And during that, you said that essentially we are at war as the West, including Canada, with Russia, whether we know it or not. I think that's a statement that would surprise a lot of our viewers at home. So what do you mean by we're at war with Russia? The Russians are pursuing a set of deliberate operations in Ukraine, throughout Europe, in the Middle East, in North Africa, and elsewhere to advance uh, Putin's desires, Putin's goals, which are antithetical to our security requirements. And he's using military force to do that. He's using diplomatic force and financial pressure and other things. And we are not really recognizing how cohesive is his plan, how cohesive are these operations, and how they are actually all moving toward a single objective. And we tend to be a bit too focused, in my opinion, on the risk of conventional conflict with Russia and how we need to pre prepare for war with Russia, and we do, um, but we are not really seeing that he's actually achieving his objectives without having to use conventional warfare in the current environment. So how is that threat manifesting then? Is it in terms of fake news? Is it information operations? Is it attacks on elections? Uh, how is this sort of existential war playing out? Well, it's all of those things, but it is also military operations. He invaded uh, Georgia in 2008. He invaded uh, and seized and annexed Crimea in 2014. He invaded Donbass in eastern Ukraine in 2014. He has put forces in Syria. He's now got forces in Libya. So there's a military component to this, which is significant. But then, of course, it's also that military, those military undertakings are primarily aiming to support a general information operation that is designed to, to distract the West, disrupt the West, disrupt our democracies, persuade us that we're wrong, that he's right, um, and just get us fighting amongst ourselves so that he can achieve his objectives without us resisting them. So if you were able to sit down at a table with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and give him advice on how Canada should respond and what our role should be in all of this, what would you say to him? I think Canada can play a really important role. This is not right now a conflict in which you can only play if you've got big conventional forces. There's a place for that. Uh, there are places where that's important. But this is a conflict where soft power really does matter. Um, it matters to Putin 
how his information operations are perceived. It matters to him how the legality of his undertakings is perceived. And these are things that Canada can challenge as well or better than the United States or other countries. There's a big diplomatic effort here calling things out, um, calling the Russians out, not giving in to their narratives. As an example, if I may, in Ukraine, the Russians are simultaneously a belligerent. They are fighting on the ground and they are posing as a mediator as well in the Minsk talks, in the Minsk agreement and the Normandy format talks. We should not be allowing them to get away with that. That's something that Canada can help with because that's about Canada saying, hey, you, Russia, you can't both be a belligerent and a mediator. So either stop fighting or get out of this mediator role. And that would be very valuable uh, coming from Canada. I, we don't have much time left, but I want to ask you about Iran, because it's something that you've also written about extensively in the wake of uh, the targeted killing of General Soleimani, of, of course, what f happened after that to the Canadians who were innocent on a plane shot down by the Iranians. That's all kind of gone quiet in the wake of COVID-19, but there are still many Canadian families who are hurting. What do you think Canada should be doing in terms of navigating that relationship with Iran? Look, I think Canada and the rest of the West needs to understand that Iran is a threat to them. It is a threat to the West in general. It is a proliferation threat, um, both of nuclear proliferation, but also of terrorism, uh, which it has conducted globally um, and attempting to disrupt and, and achieve hegemony in the Middle East, which is not in Canada's interest or anyone else's. So we all need to craft together a way of keeping sustainable pressure on the Iranian regime in order to prevent it from pursuing its objectives and force it further and further down the road where it has to make a choice about whether it's going to keep being an oppressive uh, regime seeking regional hegemony or whether it is going to choose another path. And that Canada needs to be involved in that discussion and we need to find a way to reform a consensus policy uh, that works for us and works for Canada and works for Europe. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Coming up, he failed twice to win a seat in the House of Commons for the Conservatives, but now he wants to be the party's leader. A conversation with Rudy Husney. Welcome back. The race is heating up for who will be the next leader of the Conservative Party, with a surprise endorsement for Aaron O'Toole from Jason Kenney late last week. O'Toole and Peter McKay are the two frontrunners battling it out, but only one of the eight candidates vying for victory in the race is from Quebec and says he is the only fully bilingual candidate. Joining me now is Conservative leadership candidate Rudy Husney. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, I don't want to start this off on a negative note, but you've run twice. Yes. As uh, Again, in, in general elections against Tom Mulcair, let's be fair. Yes. Uh, you didn't win either time against Tom Mulcair, uh, but you're also polling at about one percent support, and a lot of people are saying, "Who is this guy, and why is he running?" Because he can't really think he has a chance of winning this contest, much less a federal election. Look, as you said, I've been in the party for more than 12 years. I've run twice because I wanted to make sure that we had a strong conservative candidate from Quebec and in Montreal. And I was actually able to debate Thomas Mulcair in both French and English during those elections. And that's why I'm running, because I do believe that 
that we need a generational change in our party, but we also need to make sure there's a strong bilingual candidate from Quebec that can speak to all Canadians. And that's what I want to bring in this race. But most importantly, I want to bring a positive conservative vision in this race because I do believe that we are not uh, talking to Canadians and bringing the ideas that Canadians are expecting, especially when it comes to make their life easier. So what, what are some of your ideas? What's, what's your vision for Canada? My vision for Canada is a government that works for you. Look, we are not doing all the improvement that we need in terms of e-government, the way the delivery of services. We're not talking about innovation. We are not talking about digital identity. We're also not talking about things that they're worried about, like cybersecurity. Look, I come from Quebec. We had a very large identity theft. We have to take action on it. Look, as you know also, we have Phoenix. We still have the government of Canada still cannot pay its employees. How can it service properly Canadians? If you call right now CRA, Canadian Revenue Agency, there's a 75% chance they will give you the wrong information. The government of Canada should work for you and make your life easier and not the other way around. So those are kind of the vision and the positive things that I want to bring in this campaign to make sure Canadians get behind us in the next election. What about a pipeline? You're from Quebec. A yes. lot of Quebecers have been hard set against it. You say you could make a pipeline happen from Alberta to Quebec. How do you do that? Because I believe that as a Quebecer, I can reach out directly to Quebecers by saying we need to have a fact base conversation about a pipeline. You know, some people are saying I'm for LNG and I'm not for oil. At the end of the day, it's all energy. And if you are for LNG, which it's a nice acronym, you should also be able to get uh, be behind a pipeline because we are facing shortages of propane in Quebec many times, two times in the last six months. But also, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we have Canadian resources. Yes, we need transition, and I'm 100% for transition, and I've been on the record saying that. But at the same time, until Quebecers and Canadians still put gas in their car, I want it to be Canadian energy, and I've just came back, I've, I've done two trips to Alberta already, and I've uh, obviously been uh, very public about the fact that we, I'm going to champion our natural resource sector because we need that, and we need to have now, a conversation. You were in Alberta, and yes. the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenney, late last week, uh, basically came out and wrote a very strong endorsement of Aaron O'Toole, not subtle at all, shots across the board at Peter McKay. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about which of the two front runners you would back? I'm sure that if you would have asked Jason Kenney who's the bilingual candidate and he would have based this endorsement, he would have endorsed me. But obviously, it's a larger race. Uh, but again, I was very well received in Alberta. And but, people, but who, would, who would you back between for the moment, Peter I'm, McKay and Aaron O'Toole? I am running in this race. I want to get, uh, obviously, to the 3,000 signatures and to respect the, the requirement. I'm all the way in. I invite Canadians to go visit my website, learn more about me to okay. make sure that there's a strong Quebec voice in this we race. We just have a few moments left, but does that make you the Quebec kingmaker? Is that your role in this? Look, at the end of the day, it will be the members to decide, but I'm, full, I'm running a full campaign. I'm going to Saskatchewan next week. I've traveled to Atlantic Canada already. I will be in the GTA. And what I want is that members have told us, told me especially, let's have a candidate that can really focus on bringing ideas. And I've, I said also... And I will 
not those attack- are socially conservative ideas because you've said you'll march in a gay pride yes. parade. No problem with same-sex marriage. Yes. You will not allow MPs to bring forward independent members' bills on abortion. I've said that it's not a priority, but most importantly, people have told us, give us ideas that we can get behind. Stop attacking Justin Trudeau. This is not what we want. Let's say what we want to do for Canadians. We have to wrap it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mercedes. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Have a great week.